0: you're listening to arc radio podcast bismillahirrahmanirrahim alhamdulillah wassalatu wassalamu wa al-salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man walah rabbi shrahli sadri wa yassirli amri wa hlul 'uqdatam min lisani yafqahu qawli assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa and al Khairan for joining us again in this uh, session in which we are making selections Brief selections and reflections from the blessed life of the final messenger May Allah's blessings and peace and salutations be on him And upon his family as and his companions and those who follow them Until the day of judgment, Amen. And when I say selections, in reality, any book of Seerah, any book of Seerah, however big and however voluminous and impressive and mighty, more so than this one I have in my hand, this small, this small book, it's obvious it's only going to be selections. But when you see a big book, you might think, well, that's everything. Okay. But I want us to just remind ourselves in the beginning how... No book can really be everything from the seerah. And probably the the reasons behind that are quite obvious. Or most of the reasons, the main reasons behind that are quite obvious. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent us a book. If we can call it a book. And that is Al-Quran. And we call it a book because we have to translate the word Al-Kitab. Because Al-Quran, Al-Kitab. These are two of the main names by which we know this phenomenon This revelation, this final message and testament And communication and divine speech The Qur'an, the Kitab, Kitabullah And we always translate this as the Book of Allah But there are so many ways that the Qur'an is so much more than a book And it is hard to restrict it to the ordinary meaning of a book, if I was to look up the word book in a dictionary, it's gonna have something about covers and a spine and pages. And when you are reciting in your salah, where is the where is the book? Where is the covers, the spine? This is from your heart. bayinat. Fi ilm, Rather it is clear signs and proofs in the chests in the chests of those who are given knowledge so in so many ways the quran is more than a book but if we call it a book then we still know that it was sent upon a messenger it was sent upon a human being and this messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam is a human being like us and I know sometimes people also don't like me to say something like, like us. Okay? My excuse? The Quran says it. And instructs the Prophet to say it. إله so, on the one hand, he is told to emphasize his sameness with us. مثلكم. Yeah? He is your mythil in this respect, in the fact of being bashar, in the fact of being human In the fact of we've been created from clay We are descended from Adam a.s. We are part of a human family We have our earthly connections And our worldly limitations That come with the fact of these bodies that we walk around in And the appetites that we have Alongside the animals, right? We mentioned this at the end of last time, how we have these two dimensions The physical Animalistic part of us and also the angelic spirit within us And in the messenger sallallahu alaihi This heightened spiritual part is superior to, to any one of us not least because of the inspiration and revelation which he received. Because of it and also as a result of it. So he was purified in order to receive this message. And this message itself purified him further and further. And raised him and lifted him further and further. ilay. So after قُلْ إِنَّمَا أَنَا بَشْرٌ مِثْلُكُمَ Here at the end of Surah Al-Kahf, which we read every Friday, inshaAllah. After this statement now, there's, there's a bit of a, a jump now from the way that he is just like you, to the way that he is not like you. Because he receives inspiration. He receives wahi, To the effect that your God is only one God. So in this he becomes the perfect one to follow. The perfect one to follow. And if we were with any of the messengers, they would be the perfect one to follow. And the perfection of that perfection is in Muhammad sallallahu And so we are given a human messenger. A human messenger to relate to. A human messenger who feels. When the people are hungry, he is hungry. I know that often we want to emphasize on the miraculous aspects and this is only right and it has its place but don't forget also that when Abu Bakr is hungry and he has tied a stone around his belly just to keep things, you know, just to almost fool his body into thinking that it's somehow full just to put some pressure here on parts of the body just to To stave the effects of that hunger. Has anyone here ever been that hungry? And when he mentions this to the messenger, he has two two stones. So, these are just examples that that explain to us that he went through all these things with his companions. And he lived the difficulties and the trials with his companions. And they loved him for that reason, as well as these Lofty spiritual ideas that we're talking about They loved him for being with them For his solidarity with them For his pity upon them But his empathy with them Not just sympathy But empathy He would understand He would understand The feelings that people are experiencing And that's something that Sometimes we lack as You know, religious advisors Preachers You know, sometimes we want to say things, we haven't walked that walk, and it's very difficult. A lot of people ask me about things and I feel completely um, unable to answer them. I haven't been in that situation. Yeah, that's why for, for things that affect women especially, there should be women scholars. There are women scholars, but that should be the port of call for so many things. You know, that a man cannot relate to. However much he's studied in the books, it's a different thing to experience and live something and to be able to answer from lived experience. So, we're saying this to, to emphasize how the sirah cannot be encompassed really in a book. Even in the three volume, Ali Salabi, Noble Life of the Prophet, very, very nice, detailed, okay, al Rahiq al Makhtum by Al-Mubarak Puri you know, all your favorite ones okay, Martin Lings okay whatever there are always going to be selections always selections and actually there's no uh, real difference between saying the Sirah of the Prophet wasallam and the sunnah yeah, we define these in different ways we define these in different ways, so seerah when we talk about Sirah. We're thinking linearly, we're thinking about a series of events, uh, beginning with his birth, or perhaps before, and trying to connect those dots as to what events happened, in what order, how they impacted on each other, how things developed. And that's when we call it seerah. The sunnah, of course, the word sunnah is broader, it means everything that we have from the Messenger or about him. So what he said, what he did, and his companions have reported to us, what they observed him doing, and even uh, what he was silent about. So things that happened around him and he was present and he silently approved those things. Those count as sunnah. And also his characteristics, his description. His shama'il, all is within the sunnah, all his descriptions, characteristics, and attributes. So it is obvious that those who had the blessing of his companionship, his suhbah, they were affected by that in a way that no book will really have that effect. Right? You can't read a book and become a sahabi. Okay? A sahabi had something that we can't have. I'm sorry. Don't worry, we have something they don't have, I'll tell you in a minute. But the Sahaba had something that we cannot have and that was just the blessing of having looked upon his face and having him look upon them. Having the chance to to touch his hand. Having the chance to observe him and follow him in his everyday life. And it's enough to, be, to become a Sahabi. Yeah, that they met him, they believed in him, and they died upon that iman. That's the definition of Sahabi. But you understand there's something, there's a spiritual transformation that happens by the fact of being in the company of someone with those unique qualities of the Messenger. So that's suhbah. Okay, companionship. We can all have good company. We can all have good company, we just, we can't have that level of direct company. So we do our best to connect with the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam through learning about his life, through learning about his sunnah and his seerah, through living that sunnah, through learning about his companions as well and how they behaved with him. We learn the adab of how to behave with him Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Because as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says Addressing them وَعْلَمُوا أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ Know that Among you is the messenger of Allah <coughs> And this is Surah Al-Hujurat But this message echoes through time as well To us To know that we have also an adab We also have We also have etiquettes To display when we are speaking about him sallallahu alayhi wa when we are hearing his hadith when we are learning the fiqh of this religion learning the do's and don'ts uh, when we are learning um the mannerisms in this religion and how we treat our messenger sallallahu alayhi wa not like Anybody else We don't speak of him Just as we would speak of anyone else Just as the companions were told Not to address him And speak him, speak to him By name The way they do Amongst each other Or the way they would call out to each other So another aspect of this uh, issue Of all of seerah being selections Is the fact that When we come to The hijrah And what's after the Hijrah. A lot of times what we will encounter. In fact, always we will encounter this in the books of Seerah. There's going to be a lot of emphasis on one particular aspect. On one particular sequence of events. Because they are the most exciting events. And that is the battles. Okay. So the problem that this can create for us is. If we are reading the Seerah books and we just, we just pick it up and read it through and we don't think about Seerah in amongst everything else that is the Sunnah we might think that the whole of the Seerah is actually about battles and historically that's, you know, before the, the genre or this type of uh, writing was known as Seerah it was more frequently known as Maghazi and Maghazi literally means the battles, it was the battle literature because that's how this genre came to be compiled. Even within the Hadith books, you can find, you know, Kitab al-Maghazi, right? So then it sort of branched off and it became a bit broader, and it's called Sirah. Now we call it Sirah uh, most uh, commonly. But of course, it is very significant that the Prophet did engage in battles. Sometimes, very often. In person, being involved in person At other times the Muslims were involved in some aspects of conflict We can't ignore that We can't ignore that And this is just part of the reality of this world that we live in And it's part of the reality of human beings Don't forget that when Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala created The first human being The angels were quite taken aback even you might read their reaction is almost like horror. They said, "Are you going to place therein?" And there's a lot of ways of trying to understand how, why the angels were, you know, how did the angels actually have the you know the goal, almost, to ask the question of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. But Allah gave them the ability to see things and observe things and to perceive things, and also gave them the ability to ask. So He was ready for their question, and this is all part of bringing out the wisdom behind the creation of humanity. They said, "Would You place therein You be placed on earth such as will cause corruption, shed blood?" Meanwhile, we are singing your praises. وَنَحْنُ نُسَبِّحُ بِحَمْدِكَ وَنُقَدِّسُ لَكَ And declare your holiness. So they could see something, and this is one explanation. They could see something in the nature of the human being. Even as noble as Adam was, but they could see something in his clay dimension, in his physical dimension. Before the ruh has blown into him, they can see that there is a potential here for bloodshed and fighting. Yeah? There are other explanations. Why did, why did this come to their... Uh, why, why did they conceive of it in this way? Why did they ask this question? But let's say it's to do with something about human nature. The human is going to aspire to high status. It's going to aspire to power and then he's going to clash with others who want their status and power and there's going to be bloodshed So if that's the nature of the world we should not be uh, shocked nor should we be ashamed that Islam as a deen and a way of life and a system of living and guidance for all humanity until the Day of Judgment that it would talk about these things and that the Quran would address these things why are we so surprised that the Qur'an would talk about something called Jihad or Qital? If it didn't address these things, we would not say, Well, the Qur'an is a very nice, peaceful idea, but it's an unrealistic proposition. The Qur'an seems to assume that everyone's going to get along. Well, I'll tell you what, the Qur'an doesn't assume that everyone's going to get along. The Qur'an is giving us a blueprint for how we can get along. And how we can do what we can to eliminate the excesses of some human beings over others By bringing us all under the servitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And sometimes there are people who will refuse that And Islam has not given us any right to force anyone to believe anything At the point of the sword or the end of the, the barrel of the gun or anything else there is no Iman that doesn't come from personal conviction. لا في الدين قد تبين الرشد من الغي. Allah says there is no compulsion in religion. Indeed, truth stands out clear from error. So this is the basic principle of our deen. We cannot force anyone to believe. And that's never what the fighting, that's never what the battles were about. But we can see when we study the seerah, it becomes much clearer. You know, what was the, the subtext and the pretext? What led in to these various battles? Why was there a need for any conflict? Who originated and started these conflicts? What was the position of the Muslims with respect to them? How did they do their best to minimize the need for conflict and how did they behave in the midst of conflict what were the ethics and the principles that the Muslims observed when they when they found themselves with no option but to be on the battlefield against and don't forget this facing people who were in many cases their own family members sometimes a son having to face his own father on the battlefield Why? Because the lines had been drawn between those who were standing with this new religion, which is not a new religion, you understand, but with this message and messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, recognizing its truth and being prepared to sacrifice in its path. And on the other hand, those who opposed the messenger, those who decided that they're There was no path for them but to prevent this message from spreading. And this is the core of the issue. The Quraysh, the Quraysh after persecuting the Prophet ﷺ in Mecca and trying to extinguish his message there and failing to do so, they did not decide to let it go. Instead, they wanted to pursue their agenda to squash this message by using now military means. By using military means. So the first of these things was of course that essentially they drove him out. They drove him out of his, his homeland. And they drove out the believers. So when we talk about the Hijrah, when we talk about the emigration, uh, of course we, we see it in, in positive terms. And we should see it in positive terms. That the believers were establishing themselves in a new place. They were moving from one place to to somewhere that they can uh, they can live their identity, they can they can be in a sense in control of their own destiny, you know, under the will and guidance of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and a place that they can establish institutions. The most important institution, of course, being The Masjid, that Masjid which is still still there to this day. And others, the smaller ones, which they established on the way. So the Hijrah we can see in these positive terms. But don't forget that the only reason the Hijrah became necessary is because of the persecution. Of the fact that the Quraysh, the Meccans, the idol worshippers, they refused to let this group of believers, just to leave them alone Leave them alone to live According to their conviction And to leave them alone To speak to others About this, uh, about this faith So for that reason It became necessary at first for, for some of the believers to escape To Abyssinia Where there was a Christian king And later on they came back And joined the other believers On the major migration which took place uh, towards what was called Yathrib, and the Messenger وسلم, renamed it as Al Madina or Madinatul Nabi, the city of the Prophet. And it is known after he illuminated it with his presence as Al Madinatul Munawwara, the illuminated city. Now, I want to correct one misconception because every year. In Muharram, when we have the Islamic New Year, I always read all the posts on Facebook and Twitter and, and the latest ones that you're on. Okay, People are always posting that, uh, well, they always seem to assume that the Hijrah took place in Muharram. Okay, Why? Because Muharram is the first month of the, of the year, of the Islamic year. Do you know all the 12 months? You must know the song. Okay? We won't go. Yeah. Muharram. Safar. Rabi'ul Awal. Rabi'ul Thani. What's next? Jumada. al ula Jumada Al-Thaniya. Or Al-Ukhera. Then? Rajab. Shaban. Ramadan. 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 And? Shawwal. And then? Dhul Qa'ada. Dhul Hijjah. Okay? So we have 12 months in the Islamic Lunar Year, which were used before the Muslims that's important to understand Muslims didn't invent this calendar and Muharram was already considered to be the first month of the year why because uh, the the Arabs and remember that they inherited the Hajj even though they distorted it but they inherited the Hajj from the time of Ibrahim so they already had Dhul-Hijjah and that was considered the culmination of the year. So it is the last month, Dhul Hijjah. And then the first moon after the Hajj is the moon of Muharram. So most likely, Muharram was already considered the first month of the year. What happened in the time of Umar is that they calibrated the year one to be the year of the Hijrah. So that's why we call it the Hijri calendar. Right? So year one, was the year that the Messenger Sallallahu made Hijrah. But he didn't do so in Muharram. So when we have Muharram and we see a happy Islamic new year, no, no, that's bid'ah, blah, blah, blah. We have the big argument every time. Okay. But when we mark the fact that there is a new Islamic year, it is not that it is the time of the Hijrah. It's just that because it's the Hijri year, it reminds us of the Hijrah. Which month did the Hijrah take place? Rabi' al-Awwal. Rabi' al-Awwal. But we're all, always busy in al Awwal, so we forget about the Hijra, right? So, in the migration, the migration uh, to Medina, of course you know some of the, the incidents that took place around this, and how the Prophet prepared, how he prepared himself for this journey, and how he took with him his closest friend, whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions as being with him in the cave, Abu Bakr anhu, how he left behind him and entrusted Ali radiallahu anhu to, to, to carry this mission of, of confusing and confounding uh, the unbelievers who were coming in to, to attack him. And how he also entrusted him to return, to return the belongings. Remember, even though they they had accused him of all sorts of things. They still knew that he was Asad al amin the truthful and the trustworthy. So even those who didn't believe in him, they still had left some of their things with him as trust. Okay, they had deposited some valuables with him. So he, he asked Ali to return those things to their owners. And when they were in the cave, of course, there was a time of extreme... Uh, fear and worry when Abu Bakr عنه, became worried that they would be discovered and the famous narration pertains to the cave of Thawr and some of these uh, narrations tell us about the, there was a, you know, a, a pigeon and its nest and there was a spider and its web these narrations are usually not very strong like some of these things come in the Sirah. It can be different levels of, of strength. This is one of the. This is like stronger, stronger, like the spider's web. To be honest, it is a very nice story, and we don't mind to tell it. But we should know the difference between something that is, you know, narrated to us in strong hadiths and those things which are like you know, nice uh, decoration on the cake. Okay, we do know. We do know from the Quran that there was this moment of fear, and. Uh, when Abu Bakr must, must have been afraid because the Prophet responded to him, إذ هما في إذ قال لصاحبه لا تحزن إن الله معنا. So the Prophet is reassuring Abu Bakr here. He's reassuring him that, you know, don't be afraid, don't be don't be grieved for Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is with us. And these moments are among the things which reaffirm our belief in him and his truth. Because the certainty of the Messenger is that at this moment we at this moment we nothing can happen to us. Because Allah has guaranteed, Allah has guaranteed the safety of this message. We are going to reach our destination. So Abu Bakr is worried about some of the worldly causes, some of the things that might happen. But the Prophet Sallallahu is being made to see beyond these worldly aspects to the divine protection and the divine care that they are in. So these are some of the, the events, of course, which took place as they were migrating. And they received support also from, uh, from the family of Abu Bakr anhu. both its uh, men and especially its women who supported this migration and provided provisions for their journey and now as they were arriving as they were arriving in al Medina we see we see the priority and the importance of the masjid. Why because before entering Al Medina the Prophet Stayed at a place which is about two miles outside of what is now or, no, or what was then what was then the city of Medina now, it's a bit confusing You go there and you're like Masjid Quba. It's like what is here? This is all Medina because that's, now the city has expanded. We have a different conception also you're driving You don't have a sense of, of the distance or the time that it would have taken but Masjid Quba is around two miles away from the city itself, as it was then. What we now now call the Masjid Nabawi was the city of Medina. Now the Masjid is so big, it has covered everything that was at that time the city. So they established a Masjid there, a Masjid which is mentioned in the Qur'an, as having been established upon taqwa. Yeah, it was established upon taqwa. And that reminds us that, you know, the importance of of establishing things with the right intention, right? So, a center like this, any project that you undertake to begin it with Allah's name, with the right intentions, with consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and reverence for His commands and His boundaries, this would make it blessed. This would make it blessed until the day of judgment. And Masjid Quba is still a blessed masjid. And there's still special reward in praying in that place. Even though we have Masjid Nabawi. But Masjid Quba has a special status that will never go away. La Masjidun Ussisa. Yeah, it was established upon Taqwa from its very first day. And by the way, that's one of the evidences used for why the Hijrah should be used as the first year okay because Allah describes it as the first day it was established on the first day so they say well then the year that Quba was established should be the first year scholars are very logical we just don't always understand their logic now and uh, there was even another masjid established before in masjid Nabawi, because as he was making his way into the city the time for Jumu'ah came so after four days at Quba, there was another uh, there was a Jum'ah prayer so they established a masjid among Banu Salim ibn Auf, and this is where the first Jumu'ah prayers in Islam were held and the first khutbah was delivered and then famously as they entered Medina His she-camel Sat down in a particular place And this was now to be made The masjid Right This was the place in which Masjid al-Nabawi was established So this reminds us of the importance Of the institution of the masjid Right Even if we were just to think of the masjid As the place of sujood As a place of worship it would be enough to consider its centrality okay? I know lots of the times When we're talking about the importance of masajid, We emphasize on how, Masjid is not just a place of prayer Okay, we'll get there We'll get there in a minute But what if the masjid was just a place of prayer Just A place of prayer Like if we Just pause for a minute And think about what we're saying You know, how important is Salah to us how important is salah i'm not saying to each individual you and me how important is salah to our collective identity we have nothing we have nothing more important than worshiping allah and establishing the salah literally nothing all the other things which are important are still not as important as establishing our salah as fulfilling our basic commandments and obligations which have been given to us. Okay? And the masjid symbolizes the fulfillment of this. Yes, of course, one can pray in the masjid, one can pray at home. We have all different circumstances to be accounted for. Okay? But the masjid is there as this pillar of society, standing to represent this pillar of Islam, the central pillar of Islam, which is the salah. You know how you have five pillars? We always say that there are five pillars of Islam. So one of them is the central and strongest pillar. Okay, and that is the salah. That is the salah. So it's very important for us to to keep this in mind. And I know sometimes we become frustrated. We become frustrated about how some of the masajid are run and who controls them and boards and committees and etc, etc. But we shouldn't forget that the masajid belong to all of us and also we have responsibility towards them because they are the houses of Allah. Even if some people seem to decide it's their house well, it is the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we want to help to maintain that status. And we want to fulfill that role by worshipping therein. Yeah. And if that sometimes means we have to, we have to find the best ones to work with, the ones which are more open and more reasonable. Okay, and I know I'm speaking to mostly a group of women here, and we have special challenges to overcome when it comes to how some of the masajid, or many of the masajid are run. But still, there are better examples, there are good examples. Let's start there, let's build and improve on those. As for those who are slower, yeah, let's use all means of persuasion let's use all means of persuasion, to make the masajid what they're supposed to be. I get upset, honestly, when I see... Oh, you know, I don't want to open up all controversial issues. You know, sometimes people use the word fitna, right? To describe a situation where if everyone came to use the masjid, right? If the masjid were open to women too much, it's going to result in fitna. And honestly, I really don't understand uh, how a person could see that as fitna and not what we are currently in as fitna, right? The current situation where people are exposed to every type of temptation, every type of evil is available in the outside world and in the inside worlds of your homes. I'm sorry to say where the shaitan has special Uh, Transmission beams Directly into the homes And then we're thinking That well if women came to the masjid We're going to have some kind of fitna Is going to ensue as a result We're not going to get too much into this But The masajid should be a safe haven Yeah, It should be the harbor That we go to to escape fitna Okay, If we all understand it that way and we are believers, brothers and sisters, we support one another. We support one another in righteousness. It is not the case that just the fact that men and women are in the same building is a, a recipe for fitna. Okay? Maybe ignorance. Those things plus ignorance plus poor upbringing etc. Et may result in types of fitna. But... Believing men and women Who are brought up with the right understanding And with the right manners And know how to interact And how to speak And how not to speak How to dress How to lower the gaze How to conduct relevant Respectful conversation And dialogue And mutual advice None of this is a recipe for fitna Quite the opposite this is a recipe for so many good things okay segregation can be complete and absolute that's that's fine absolutely fine but the the presence and the participation has to be there and of course sometimes you have the space but you don't have the the access or you don't have the opportunity to participate or to feel part of the same congregation yeah so in order to solve this, we need to make the masjid, we need to make every masjid, or at least enough masajid, to be that safe haven, to be that safe haven, that protects us from the fitna, that guards us from the temptations and evils around us. So speaking about believing brothers and sisters, وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ والمؤمنات بعضهم أولياء بعض so, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the believers, believing men and believing women, as being protective allies and supporters of each other. And they enjoin the right and they forbid the wrong. Now, <coughs> the Prophet wasallam, when he arrived in Medina, one of the other main things that he did, apart from establishing the masajid, was establishing brotherhood. Establishing the bonds of brotherhood and uniting between um, Uniting between the Muhajireen and the Ansar So as you know the Muhajireen are the ones who have come with him from Mecca and the Ansar The Ansar refers to the helpers those believers who were in Medina waiting to welcome their migrating brothers and this is an extremely pertinent uh, example a moment in history to reflect on in our current uh, situation where we are always talking about the refugee crisis or the migrant crisis and genuinely there is there is a real crisis going on but you see how in a country like this we you know we shudder at the thought of you know a few thousand people coming you know in turkey you know there are millions millions of refugees who have come in from syria and you know i've just been there this is a turkish hat just to remind myself that i was just on holiday so over there, it is actually shaping and, and, and changing the fabric of Turkish society in amazing ways and not just kunafa and really beautiful desserts and foods springing up in the streets but the Arabic language in Turkey for a long time it was, it was against the law to teach the Arabic language that has changed on legal level but it is now changing on the social level, as we have such an influx of qualified teachers coming in Due of course to the, to the civil war, right, due to the severe repression of the Syrian regime And the fact that many people have had to escape that country and some, several other countries in the region And many of them have found themselves in Turkey So, with this situation and I remember I was reflecting on it to some brothers there and I said, you know, it's just it's a terrible circumstance that has created this situation. And the brother reminded me that, well, that's how it's always been. You know, that's why Cairo became Cairo and Al-Azhar, you know, raised in status because there was so much war across the whole region. The only place people could go was Egypt. And then it became one of the centers of Islamic learning. Right? So that's not unusual that's that's normal but the fact is instead of seeing it only as a disaster and a crisis and then as a challenge and you know something that we have to sort of bite our tongues about they're seeing it as an opportunity that there will be a shift there'll be a natural shift in you know in, in ways that can be extremely positive and can be directed towards the positive that you can overcome the challenges and the difficulties as long as you're sincere and if you embody the spirit of the Ansar if you embody the spirit of the Ansar <coughs> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes those Ansar in Surah Al-Hashr that those who had who had lived in this in, in this place of Iman, they love those who migrate to them. And they don't find in themselves any need or desire towards what they possess. And they prefer others over themselves. Even if they are in dire need, you know this spirit. If we honestly, just this ayah would be enough. And by the way, I've thought about making. I've sometimes made uh, like small Quranic films. I've made one which has not yet been released. It's based on Surah Luqman. Inshallah, will come out sometime. i made it about two years ago. It's still fresh. But my idea for the next project was this from Surah Al-Hashr. Why? Because I thought. Honestly, if people just hear these ayahs you don't need commentary, just some visual commentary maybe to help people connect to the context that they're in. And to hear these ayahs, talking about the muhajireen, talking about the Ansar, and talking about those who come after. And they see lana wa li bil iman, taj'al fi kulubina lil amanu. So The the spirit of these eyes is so strong, it's enough to make you feel what an honor, what an honor to be amongst the modern Ansar. What an honor to be in support of refugees, asylum seekers, right? And inshallah, we have our ability to be part of that here, okay? And many of you will know, and inshallah, you can tell me about, you can tell each other about, Opportunities we have to be of support and assistance to those who have made this place their home And those who have struggled from somewhere else It is not for us to say, as some people do Oh, what about the people here? What about our need? Yeah, we hear that a lot We hear that a lot It's understandable, it is human To say, what about us? What about our own homeless? If someone means that in a genuine way, it's a genuine point yeah, we have people in dire need here Even before we have people coming in from outside Yes, but look at this spirit But they prefer others over themselves even if they are in dire need So there are so many examples when you when you read about this incident in the in the seerah There are so many examples you can see of how the how they lived and how they applied these meanings and since I mentioned being in Turkey so we visited of course the, the Maqam or the Masjid of Abu Ayyub Al Ansari Abu Ayyub Al Ansari was the one whose home the Messenger Wasallam, stayed in when he arrived in Medina and this famous story about how Abu Ayyub did not want to stay on the you know he wanted to place the Messenger Wasallam, upstairs I can't actually picture how they had an upstairs and a downstairs but they must have had some good uh, some good uh, building techniques but uh, the Prophet Sallallahu stayed downstairs but Abu Ayyub could not sleep you know just dealing with the fact that I'm I'm somehow above the Messenger Sallallahu so Abu, Abu Ayyub Al Ansari okay the most beautiful description that he could have one of the Ansar so he is buried now in Turkey because later on he joined in the campaigns which were which were attempting to be part of opening Constantinople but he was not there it was not there at the time when, when this was achieved but he asked for his body to be uh, to be uh, buried in that place so this is among the, the main Uh, Blessings that one can have In visiting Istanbul You know, don't miss it You go to Blue Mosque Go to Hagia Sophia Go to Topkapi Palace Yeah, but go to Abu Ayyub al-Ansari Of course Whenever you have a chance to visit any of the Sahaba It is a very unique thing It is a very unique thing Uh, Just to feel that you are in the presence of someone who gave everything Who gave everything First of all, this is someone who saw the message of Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Then it is someone who sacrificed everything in the path of Islam And there are Sahaba buried in numerous countries You know, and, and it's very interesting to see So, last year, you know, earlier this year I was in Jordan as well And I hadn't even realized how many Sahaba there are In Jordan, because there were some of the battles took place there, battle of Mu'tah Uh, Took place there, so some of them died for that reason. Others were there, um, you know, just just part of the spread of Islam and the spread of the da'wah. The Sahaba didn't all stay in Medina after the passing of the Messenger. You know, I think we could imagine that sometimes people have a misconception that once Medina was established, of course, everyone stayed there. No, they spread through the lands and uh, a number of them uh, perished in, in Jordan due to the, the, uh, the plague, due to the plague, yeah? the black death. So we have, uh, we have now, um, having covered certain aspects from the beginning part of the Prophet's life, وسلم, and gone with him, in a sense, in the hijrah and seen some of the priorities that he uh, established in the fledgling community in Medina. Among that also, uh, as well as establishing brotherhood amongst the Muslims, he also established uh, a kind of understanding and a contractual basis of coexistence with the neighboring tribes, in particular the Jewish tribes who lived in Medina or on the outskirts of Medina. Uh, so this was the basis of, of living together uh, peacefully. And, and this you know reminds us that the, the, the Islamic perspective is never about uh, forcing anyone to give up who they are, but rather it is about inviting them to the truth. But as long as they are not upon the truth, we can still live in peace alongside people. As the basic principle established in Surah Al-Mumtahana That Allah does not forbid you concerning those who did not fight you concerning your religion Nor drove you out from your homes That you be kind to them and deal in justice Deal justly with them Right? So Allah does not prevent you from being kind and just to them and this expression by the way, la an you might think, oh, it's just permitted then. No, the point is that it's addressing a misconception. A misconception that still people have. That there's something wrong with being kind and doing birr. Birr. You know we use this word birr when we're talking about kindness to parents as well. Okay? That you do birr and kind treatment towards them, as well as dealing with them justly. No, that's not forbidden for you at all. In fact, that is the norm, that is the principle, that is the default. But Allah only prevents you and forbids you concerning those who fought you over religion and drove you out of your homes from what? No, no, he doesn't prevent you from being just, no. He prevents you from taking them as your allies, okay from taking them as your allies so the revelation is drawing a line clearly between you know between which side you are going to take, Allah and his messenger or those who opposed Allah and his messenger and the believers so you cannot have it both ways to claim to be among the believers and to ally with those who are attacking and oppressing And driving out the believers It's obvious But the Quran came to affirm this Because sometimes the ties You know the historical ties And the blood ties were so strong That people became tempted To behave in certain ways That would contradict the clarity of this distinction Between the people of truth And the people opposing the truth But as for those who are not fighting you You can live in peace with them You can make treaties with them as they did with the jewish tribes in medina later on these treaties broke down and they broke down for reasons that occurred one by one and who was it who broke the treaty in each case it was the other side not the muslims who violated the treaty because it was in the interest of the muslims to maintain these treaties and even when it came to uh, the battle of the trench when there was an understanding that one of those tribes would be along with the Muslim Medinans in defending the city, it turned out that that tribe sided with the invading Meccans and allied with them in an attempt to join with them in quashing the Muslim existence in Medina. So this became something which is known as As treason or the violation the violation of the treaty upon which the city was established so it's important to understand this uh, document which is called the Constitution of Medina or sometimes it's described as the Constitution of Medina and some scholars have described it as the first written constitution in the history of humanity okay that's a claim made by some um, academics the first written constitution in history, not in Muslim history, in history In any case, this was a treaty on the basis of of coexistence and something not far away from what we now call citizenship This is a problem sometimes when we take a modern word and then we just throw it back onto even the word constitution or the word citizenship but these words are not too far off from helping us to understand the nature of that agreement even to the extent that the document as we have it says that the Muslims and the Jews of Medina are one Ummah. Okay, and you're like, ah, how can you use the word Ummah? The Ummah means the Muslims. Well, in some contexts, you know, the Ummah is a broader sense. And actually, even today, we can describe this whole world of, of human beings as one ummah. And it is the Ummah of Muhammad sallallahu But it's the Ummah to which he is sent. And then there are among them those who are the Ummah who responded. Okay, within the Ummah, there is an Ummah. Okay, so we as Muslims are one Ummah. But we also are part of a broader Ummah of human beings. Right, hope that's not too confusing. But it is always useful to see ourselves as part of as part of others while sometimes when we're talking we're talking in terms of of boundaries and separation we should still remember that there are many people out there who are waiting to hear that message. They are part of the Ummah to which the Prophet was sent. They are his Ummah and then you, yes you have the job of carrying the message that he brought them To them Because he has delivered the message And when we come Whether we come to mention all these things Specifically or not That's why I jump ahead Because I don't know When we get there In the farewell sermon He asked his ummah To testify Have I Have I conveyed the message? Yeah He has conveyed the message Oh Allah, bear witness I have conveyed the message So he has done his job okay? And then he has passed to you The responsibility To carry that message To those who do not hear As he said Let those who are present Convey it to those who are absent Let those who are present Convey it to those who are absent So that is a task Which remains As long as we are in this world sorry we've got a lot of work to do we've really got a lot of work to do whenever i do uh, go abroad you know people ask me always you know how is islam in scotland and i you know i don't know sometimes how to answer i say alhamdulillah it's fine we've got we've got everything that we need you know but then i think about it and i just think you know but we could be doing a lot more we really could be doing a lot more I don't have that much impressive to tell him. I tell him about al mizan of course. I do. I Genuinely, I do. But I do think, you know, I do feel that we are a bit lethargic and a bit lazy. Sorry to say. Maybe we're very busy. Maybe we're doing a lot of great things. But I think when it comes to being creative in conveying the message of Islam, There is so much more we could do, if we just use our imaginations and we put in the time and we invest our resources in the right way, because we have resources, we have the talent, we have the skills, we have the money, you know, alhamdulillah when it comes, when we have a need for money, we can raise it, okay, that's never a problem for this community alhamdulillah. But it's a question of where do we place this in our our priority scale, okay? So, yeah, let's think about that, let's think about that going forward, how we can be more creative, how we can be more creative in sharing the message of Islam, you know? And carry on doing what we're doing, okay? Carry on doing what we're doing, but keep a broader perspective, yeah? So, while we're passing Islam, you know, within our families and within our communities, from Muslim to Muslim we have to do this let's not forget you know so what about you know for every person inside there could you know how do I reach 10 people outside you know outside the center outside this tent of Islam so before very long before very long the battles the battles began and the first battle which occurred um, after the migration to Medina was, of course, the Battle of Badr. Battle of Badr, of course, um, took place in the month of Ramadan, the second year after the Hijrah. Specifically, 17th of Ramadan. And it started with... Um, with the Quraysh caravan When we say caravan, you know, don't picture the thing that you pull with the car That's a caravan, right? So when you're reading the seerah and it mentions a caravan You need to not picture, yeah, like a trailer Caravan means a whole sequence of like camels and donkeys and carrying goods Yeah, so that's called a caravan The Prophet had gone out with some of his companions to intercept a Quraysh caravan that was returning from Syria to Mecca. So there was was a a skirmish around this which resulted in Quraysh sending approximately 1000 fighters including 600 men in armour and 100 horsemen in armour in addition to the infantry who wore armor 700 camels and singers they used to send they used to send the the propaganda department singers beating drums and singing songs to insult the muslims so the muslim army the muslim army at this stage numbered 313 or 314 men most of them coming from the Ansar. They had with them 70 camels and 2 or 3 horses. Small groups took it in turns to ride the camels. Before a battle was joined, the Prophet ﷺ wanted to consult his companions, especially the Ansar, about engaging in battle. The Muhajirun were in favor of fighting and spoke well. Then the Ansar realized that he was waiting for them to speak. So Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, who was the leader of the Ansar, said, O Messenger of Allah, we believe in you, we declare your truth, and we witness that what you have brought is the truth. We have given you our word and agreement to hear and obey. So go where you wish, we are with you. By Allah, if you were to ask us to cross the sea, and you plunged into it, we would plunge into it with you. And not a man would stay behind. So, this was the, the commitment now of the Ansar along with the Muhajirun to defend the safety of the Messenger and of this deen. Right? And you remember, of course, because I mentioned now they were inter- intercepting a caravan, you know, this was an attempt to restore and to regain some of what the Muslims themselves had left behind in Mecca. Right? So, it was not a case of looting and trying to take the property of the Quraysh but rather it was to regain some of the property that the, the, the Muslims had abandoned when they had migrated to Medina. But as the battle um, came and developed they camped uh, at a place of, of water near to Badr and the Prophet ﷺ instructed them that, to camp in this place. And one of the companions Al-Habab ibn al-Munzir Asked him a very interesting question He said, is it based on Revelation That we are going to camp here So Allah has instructed you That we must camp here Or is it a matter of opinion And military strategy Okay, so remember we said How is it the angels had the Brass neck to ask that question How are you creating a human being? Well, we see that the companions also they were not afraid to ask a question, but they asked with every kind of adab. Oh Messenger of Allah, is, it, is this revelation? In which case, of course, I will say nothing. Or is it a matter of opinion? In which case, I might like to advance an alternative opinion. So when the Prophet ﷺ replied that it is a matter of opinion and military tactics, then al habab pointed out that it would be better to go to another place where the Muslims would be better able to control the water supply at Badr. So they went to the place that Al-Habab suggested. So this is a very important uh, lesson from the Messenger ﷺ. Teaching humility, but also teaching uh, the the importance of taking the best advice, taking the best uh, skills, knowledge, From his community. Right? And that's something that we we really lack. You know, I was alluding to this before. We have so many talents here. Even in this room, we have probably so many talents that that you know about, maybe as individuals, but you might not even have the opportunity to let anybody else know that you have that talent. Let alone for us to know as an institution. Wow, so-and-so has actually got this amazing ability, this amazing skill that we could use, we could use in this, in this project, we could use in this constructive way that could actually benefit lots of people. So sometimes you have a talent and you just sit on it quietly. Other times, um, you might not even know that you have that talent because nobody gave you the opportunity to try things out and to develop those skills. You know, Alhamdulillah in this society We might have the opportunity because we go to school and we get to try out different things you know in other places maybe um, people don't have access to opportunities to even try things and find out what they're good at but then unfortunately what happens is sometimes people don't even appreciate those talents or they try to squash them right and um, sometimes people feel threatened by by new ideas or new skills etc you know but but that's why we have a center like this It's a place inshallah to explore and to get to know each other And to learn and benefit from each other So you see how the Prophet ﷺ valued what Al-Habbab had to say He valued it and say, well I am the messenger I do receive wahi And even if I did not receive this particular instruction by wahi I do know better Would that be a valid thing to say? It would be a valid thing to say but instead, he said, "This is somebody who has come to me with a good idea. I will listen to it with an open mind, and then I will actually follow it." Okay. So, the lessons in this are are limitless. Anyway, the Battle of Badr, um, we will not go into details about how it played out, but you do know, you do know that in this there was famously the divine assistance in the form of angels who came down it's mentioned in surah ali imran that he supported the believers with angels who fought alongside the believers and the narrations in the sirah tell us that the companions even observed this and could see could see the angels fighting alongside them imagine how that strengthened their resolve but this was a decisive victory for a decisive victory for the believers now a year later was the battle of Uhud, and the battle of Uhud was uh, for the Quraysh an opportunity to even the score uh, with the Muslims. They wanted the exact revenge. This took place in Shawwal in the third year of Hijrah, so a year, you know, actually 13 months later. So they set out from uh, Mecca with 3,000 fighters, 700 men in armor, 200 horsemen. And they came to the Mount of Uhud, which is two miles to the north of Medina. Uh, Then the the Messenger of of Allah and some of the Sahaba, they had to make a decision now whether to go out to meet them or stay in the city. And here there was a, a discussion or a debate which took place among some of the the younger uh, believers uh, who had the position that we should go, that we should go and fight. And in the end, the Prophet ﷺ took their opinion, and he went and he put on his armor and they went to fight with them. The Muslims numbered at this time around 1,000 troops, among them 100 armoured men and horsemen. At this time, they started to encounter the problem which is known by the title of the Munafiqun, the hypocrites. And this is a phenomenon that occurred in Medina that you could not have expected to occur in Mecca. The Munafiqun, usually we translate as the hypocrites. That's okay, but we have to understand that in English language, we use the word hypocrite in a number of different ways. Okay? So if somebody says, oh, you know, uh, don't eat sweets and then they eat a sweet. You know, You're a munafiq. Right? It's, not, it's not like that, okay? So hypocrite means you say one thing, but you do another. Or there's some difference between your actions and your uh, your statements, or your statements and your reality. So, in the case of the munafiqun, the hypocrites with the capital H, these were people who, in their hearts, disbelieved in Allah and His Messenger. Or, in any case, they were they were not they were not convinced of the truth of Islam, or they had rejected Islam, even if they recognized its truth. By the way. It's very important to understand that the unbelievers, the unbelievers, uh, the Mushrikun or the Kafirun, including the Munafiqun, when we talk about these people at the time of the Messenger, you know, they had different motivations for why they, why they disbelieved. Disbelieving doesn't just mean that they weren't convinced. They were the people who saw the Messenger. It's impossible. Almost impossible that they could see him and not know that he is the truthful one and not know that he is truthful in his claim So when they disbelieved in him, it was like the worst possible form of disbelief that could ever exist in the history of humanity That's important to understand. You have people who are unbelievers now But in a sense it's much easier to be an unbeliever. It's much easier to be unconvinced of the truth of Islam because you, ha- you don't see the Messenger you don't see him in front of you So we could say, I've heard it suggested in this way and I think it's true That just as the Iman, the Iman of the Sahaba was the highest form of Iman So we have Iman but their Iman was something special because of that direct connection In the same way the Kufr, and the unbelief of those people at that time was like the worst possible level of kufr. And though there is kufr today, no kufr can compare to that kufr and disbelief. Of the people who lived with the Messenger and rejected him. Right? So that's something that sometimes helps to keep things a bit in perspective, you know. You know nobody really today is Abu Jahal or Abu Lahab, right? Just like you are not Abu Bakr or Omar, uh, okay? Or Khadija. Sorry. okay So I said to you, I promised you something before, and you didn't ask me to complete. I said, "The Sahaba have something, and then you have something." right? So I said, "The Sahaba have something that you can't have, which was Suhba living with the messenger Wasallam. But in case you don't know it, you should know it, that the Prophet Wasallam one day, he said, "I am longing for my brothers. I'm longing for my brothers." And the Sahaba were like, yeah. Ya Rasulullah, you know, uh, is it not us? Are we not your brothers? He said, you are my companions. You are my companions. But my brothers, Ikhwani, my brothers, and sisters by the way, equal opportunity word, Ikhwan, will encompass brothers and sisters. Okay. But my brothers, my Ikhwan, there are people who will believe in me without seeing me. Will believe in me without seeing me. And in this hadith, he also describes how uh, those people who believe in him without seeing him, they would have a multiplication in their reward. Okay. However, you should bear in mind that sahaba will get reward for our reward. Okay, because yeah, they came before us in Iman and they established they established the security of Iman and they fought in Badr and they fought in Uhud so that our Iman could exist today. So nothing can take away nothing can take away from their status. Even if our rewards are multiplied by the fact that we are believing in the Messenger without seeing him well, still our our rewards Yeah, they will get a share of our rewards as well okay without anyone's reward being decreased okay so don't be jealous at the end of the day they are Sahaba they are Sahaba and we get inshallah to be with them in Jannah there's no there won't be there won't be any barrier that only the Sahaba can be with the Messenger sallam, in the in the Akhirah, okay but whoever fears Allah whoever obeys Allah and his Messenger yeah فَأُلَائِكَ مَعَ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ مِنَ الْنَّبِيِينَ وَالصَّدِيقِينَ وَالشُّهَدَاءِ وَالصَّالِحِينَ وَحَسُنَ أولئك whoever obeys Allah and His messenger, and they are among those whom Allah has blessed and bestowed favor upon. You know how we always say الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمَ صِرَاطَ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمْتَ عليهم. the path of those whom you have Favored, whom you have blessed with ni'mah. Okay? This point of ni'mah is expanded in Surah An-Nisa. That those who obey Allah and His Messenger, they would be amongst those whom Allah has bestowed favor. Namely, the Prophets, an nabiin, Was siddiqeen and the Truthful Ones, were shuhada, and those who witness to the truth. We may say the martyrs, but to be honest, the word martyr is not really a Qur'anic word. salihin uh, And the righteous. رفيقى, and how wonderful they are as companionship. So companionship, we've got the Akhirah, we've got the Akhirah, okay? But for now, we, are, we have the blessing of being the brothers. If we believe in the Messenger وسلم, without having seen him. How do we get on to this jealousy? Okay, so the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Uhud. At Uhud, of course, there was a a severe test for the believers when a certain group among them were were placed on a a strategic point, a strategic position, and um, the Prophet had placed... 50 archers to guard the rear flank of the the muslim army and he told them to stay to stay in their place and according to one report he said even if you see birds snatching us do not leave your place here until i send for you even if you see us defeating the people or that we have prevailed and they are dead do not leave your places until i send for you okay but then as, uh, you know, unfortunately, it did not turn out this way, the archers, or some of them, when they saw that the Muslims were about to overcome the, the mushrikeen decisively, they decided to leave their position. Some of them stayed, some of them left. But uh, this, this resulted in, uh, in uh, the mushrik army coming from behind, and regaining considerable strength in the course of the battle. Uh, So in the end, it was not a victory for the believers, nor entirely a victory for the unbelievers, but somewhere, somewhere in between. But it was enough for the unbelievers to take, uh, you know, to chalk this up as a PR uh, victory. And in this incident, of course, the Prophet himself was injured um, That uh, His face and knees were cut His lower lip was injured His helmet was broken on his head Two circles of chainmail uh, Pierced his cheek And we see in this situation How the Sahaba How the Sahaba threw themselves In harm's way In order to protect the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Out of their um, Unparalleled Love and devotion to him, sallallahu And this was the battle in which the uncle and beloved uh, companion of the Prophet Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib uh, was killed and uh, mutilated uh, by uh, Hind, the wife of Abu Sufyan. So these these incidents you know about. These incidents you know about, but this was a very testing, a very testing uh, day for the believers, and concerning which much Quran was revealed, in Surah Ali Imran. Much Quran was revealed as a lesson and admonishment to the believers to take stock of what had happened, and to rebuild, yeah, to rebuild, to turn uh, a new leaf, and to understand. How to react in future There were various other battles We'll mention them just almost by name So that we uh, don't spend too much time The battle of Banu nadir And then the battle of the Ahzab Which is the battle of the trench Uh, Another example where The Prophet took the advice And the uh, knowledge of some of his companions In this case Salman al-Farisi Bringing knowledge from, uh, from the Persians of how, how to strategize and to build a ditch around the city. And this turned out to be a very effective strategy. And you notice that he didn't say, oh, this is a foreign idea. you know. Rather, it's wherever there is good, wherever there is wisdom, we take it. If it is useful, it doesn't matter where it comes from. So this was a, a battle which didn't turn out to be a fully a battle, but it's one which was dissipated in the end uh, after the, the city of Medina was besieged for, uh, for a considerable time. It ended when um, uh, there was you know, some, some uh, strategic techniques used to create division amongst those confederates and those parties who had converged on Medina. And then finally Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent a wind which, which dispersed them and sent them back. Yeah. And after this was dealing with Banu Qurayza, as I mentioned before, one of the tribes, one of the Jewish tribes of Medina who had allied with the unbelievers uh, in, this, um, in this campaign. Later we have the campaign of al Hudaybiyah. Now we are talking about sixth year after Hijrah. And this was a very important turning point, as the believers, uh, the believers, were on their way in the hope of making, uh, making Umrah uh, peacefully. But there was, uh, you know, they were prevented, they were prevented, by the Quraysh. But this resulted, this resulted in. Um, in a pledge and a, a truce being struck between the Muslims and the Meccans. Okay. And this pledge, you know, its basic, uh, its basic points were that it would, it would allow, um, first of all, cessation of war between the two sides for 10 years. Okay, it didn't turn out that way. It didn't turn out that way. But there was a considerable period of time when there was no war between the two sides. Anyone who came from the Muslims and went to Mecca was not to be sent back, but anyone who came to uh, Medina from Mecca would be sent back. So a number of these terms in the in the treaty. Seemed very unfair for the Muslims. And a number of the Muslims found it very difficult to swallow. Found it very difficult to swallow. And they felt that they had been humiliated by the striking of this deal. But Allah and His Messenger knew better than this. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala described this in a surah which is called Surah Al-Fatih. Which begins by saying, "Inna Fatahna laka We have given you, O Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, a clear victory, or a clear conquest. So here the Fath, usually Fath we understand to be a military conquest. Like the Fath of Makkah, in the end, the conquest of Makkah. And that's the one that we understand in. إِذَا جَاءَ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ nasr النَّصْرِ right? When the help of Allah comes, or the support of Allah comes, and the conquest. So the opening of Mecca. But here it is describing what? A truce, a peace treaty. So we see how in the sight of Islam, a peace treaty itself is a victory. It's a victory because it allowed the circumstances in which the message of Islam could be spread in which it will flourish. And so it was. So it was that for the next few years it was a, a peak time in which the message of Islam spread and the fulfillment of, uh, the, fulfillment of the purposes of the Messenger's mission were fulfilled. Because his mission was not about being at war and fighting. There were several other battles which took place. Also, with some of the outlying the outlying, uh, the outlying uh, forces, there was the Battle of Khaybar and the Battle of Mutah, which I mentioned, which uh, is you know the place now is in Jordan, and this was uh, you know to drive off some of the the Roman or Byzantine uh, forces which were threatening the edges of the Muslim uh muslim governance at that time and the culmination of course is with the conquest of mecca in ramadan in the eighth year after hijrah the reason for this battle if we can call it a battle it's called that here was that the treaty of Hudaybiyah allowed each arab tribe to enter into an alliance with the messenger وسلم, if they wanted or with quraish if they wanted Banu Bakr agreed to enter an alliance with Quraysh and Khuza'a agreed to enter an alliance with the Messenger. However, in that year, the 8th of Hijrah, Banu Bakr attacked Khuza'a. Okay, so the one that was allied with the Quraysh attacked the one that was allied with the Muslims, killing approximately 20 men. And Quraysh supplied Banu Bakr with money and weapons. When the Messenger heard of that, he prepared to fight the Quraysh, but he did not want to tell the people where he was heading so they made a strategy to enter makkah as quietly as possible okay and uh, you know that was almost thwarted uh, by one of the believers who, who sent a, a message and we won't go into his story just now but in any case they managed to enter they managed to enter without uh, without the meccans being Entirely aware of their intentions So he set out from Medina on the 10th day of Ramadan As numbering 10,000 people On the way, others from the Arab tribes joined them And when they reached Mecca The Prophet's callers declared Whoever enters his house and locks his door will be safe Whoever enters the masjid will be safe And whoever enters the house of Abu Sufyan will be safe Because Abu Sufyan was a man who you needed to deal with some diplomacy. So he got this special deal. There were 15 people who were excluded from this amnesty due to specific crimes, which now we can can describe in the terms of war crimes. People who had committed war crimes were not to be given a general amnesty. But for the most part, the people were told, go, you are free, and there's no blame on you this day. And this was when the Prophet Entered the Kaaba, prayed two rakahs and then he stood at the door of the Kaaba, and he said to them, "O Quraysh, what do you think I am going to do with you?" They said, "You are going to do good because you are a noble brother, son of a noble brother." And the Prophet ﷺ said, "Today I say to you what my brother Yusuf said, said: 'Qaal lla alaykum yaghfiru rahimin.'" No reproach on you this day. May Allah forgive you, and he is the most merciful of those who show mercy. Go, for you are free. So this began a time when people came to pledge allegiance to the Messenger as Muslims. So he received their allegiance, and then we saw you know, the, the increase of this happening now from all the surrounding Arab tribes in, in the subsequent times. Okay. There's a couple more battles which which did follow from this Battle of Hunayn, Battle of Tabuk Okay, which we will not have time to go into So this takes us This takes us through this kind of outline As I said before It's very important not to see the whole Sunnah Or even the whole Seerah as just a series of battles That's just how we're sort of forced to describe it when we try to to break down the major events of this span of years. But you see how in a short time, in such a short time, the Prophet changed the entire order of things, changed the entire order of things in Medina, in Mecca, the entire Arabian Peninsula, and how this uh, very quickly spread beyond to become all the things that we know about in the Muslim conquests and the Muslim empires. And it's important not to think of this as, well, the goal, the goal was to spread the Muslim empire and to conquer these lands. Rather, these lands came under the Muslim governance and influence according to the need, according to how those people responded to the message, and according also to how uh, some of the other political orders, clashed with the muslims and therefore there was a need to face them off uh, or to or, or you know or to establish a political order which would allow the muslims to operate and to spread their message so we can't go into all of that detail but it's about a mindset here that we should not just be proud of the victory in battles okay because then we then we almost gain a kind of warring mindset which is exactly the sort of thing that we're trying to Disprove all the time that Muslims are not about fighting, are not about war, are not about bloodshed. Jihad equals holy war, as they always say. And the problem that we have with the word holy war, you know, is that we see war as a necessity, not as something which is holy in itself. What is holy or sanctified is your intentions. Okay? But it is peace which is the desire. Peace, which is the objective and the goal, not war. So, if there was an absence of war, we wouldn't seek after war because it's holy. Actually, the peace and the worship is what is holy. And war and conflict and battle is a necessity. Even we can say a necessary evil. And I know that there are verses in the Quran which you feel uh, go against that. Or certainly... Critics of Islam will say to us here, then why does the Qur'an praise those who fight in the path of Allah? It praises them because they're sacrificing everything in the path of this message. Not because God loves for them to shed the blood of the unbelievers. No, He wants those unbelievers to respond to the message. It is not about shedding blood and praising the shedding of blood. It is praising people who are willing to stand up and defend and promote the importance of this cause and this freedom and this justice and this mercy which Islam represents. It's very important to understand, that's why I keep coming back to it. Especially when we talk about Seerah, because you can go away, you can watch the message or watch any of these films and you'll see all the battles and you'll be, yeah, you know. Then you'll watch Ertegrul and. Right? So you get into a battle mindset just realize what allah what allah i haven't watched it by the way i just I, but i hear i hear that it's good you get into, you just have to understand that what allah is praising is people's readiness to to give from their lives and their properties right they deserve praise not because of taking the lives of others but because of their readiness to to stand up and to witness to the message in The ultimate way. So of course uh, the conquest of Mecca resulted in the restoration, the restoration of uh, Monotheism to the Kaaba. And this was really the purpose. This was really the purpose the Prophet was sent to this place to restore, to restore the Kaaba as the monument of monotheism. إِنَّ أَوَّلَ بَيْتٍ وُدِعَ لِلنَّاسِ لَلَّذِي بِبَكَّةَ مُبَارَكًا That indeed the first place of worship established for humanity was that at Bakka. Why is it described here as Bakka and not Mecca? Could be a lengthy investigation. But it is the one that we know. Okay? And where is the Maqam of Ibrahim and clear signs. So this was the Qibla that the Prophet ﷺ was restored to, after having faced al-Masr al-Aqsa, then he was told to turn his face back to this first Qibla. And this became the Qibla of this Ummah until the Day of Judgment. And this became the symbol and the central beacon of monotheism and the worship of the One God. And it remains that way. May Allah increase its sharaf and give us the sharaf of visiting his house. So this is the restoration. At this point, of course, we would come to the last, uh, we would come to the last days of the Messenger But it's too painful. I'm not going to do it. So, inshallah, we're going to uh, conclude our uh, explanation of the seerah here. I hope inshallah it has been, it has been some, uh, some way of, of grasping. I hope a little bit helped us to make sense of some things and to contextualize some things. Wa da'wana, and Alhamdulillah rabbil alamin.